So our graduating class has been looking for uh, placement, job placements uh, for throughout most of the spring. And my prayer for them has been that God would open the right doors and close the wrong doors and <laughs> slam the very wrong doors. Um, and so that's, that we've all left about that because um, they, they have, the, you know, there's a place for everybody that the church needs, needs people, needs talented young leaders. And so that they'll all have a place. Um, but it's it, the process of finding it is hard. And so I think that's my prayer for us this morning as I think about the conversion of Saul to Paul um, from church persecutor to church planter, that for all of us, um, that when we're going in the wrong direction, we'll, God will spin us around in our tracks and put us on the right road. Um, so let's, uh, in that spirit, let's pray. Holy and gracious God, We give you thanks once again for bringing us together. We thank you for the excitement that so often happens this time of the year as young people especially graduate from schools and seek to find their way. We ask your blessing upon them. We ask your blessing also upon those who sent them, both mothers especially and fathers Um, that they would um, guide gently and gracefully um, as as the young people find their way. We ask for ourselves also that you would open the right doors and shut the wrong ones. When you see us headed in the wrong direction in a path that will lead to nothing good or that will bind us in some way, Um, that will make us less able to serve you. We ask that you would turn us right around, call us back to yourself, uh, remind us of your love, all with your wanted kindness and gentleness as far as possible. But if necessary, then with a two-by-four, we ask all these things in your own holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, the two by four. You all know that joke, right? The the the, um, the man with the donkey um, who who says, um, um, he, "I always want to be very very kind to your animal," and and walked up and and um, and then hit it. They hit the animal on the head with a two by four, and and the friend said, "That's not being kind." Said, well, first you have to get his attention. You know? So um, that's what happened to Paul. That's what happened to Saul, who became Paul. Um, God, God acted in loving kindness to free him from his terrorist self, um, but first had to uh, hit him over the head with a two by four. Actually, he did. It wasn't that drastic. It, even it was still a kind way of being stopped. But it was a wall. It was a wall. Absolutely cannot go any further. Stop. And sometimes that's what it takes for somebody with the kind of energy and um, drive and single-minded tunnel vision that Saul had uh, until God stopped him. Um, So that's our story for today. Um, We're going to look at, we're going to go to Acts 9 in a minute, but I thought it would be helpful to remind you, remind all of us, remind myself too, that um, Paul, Paul as portrayed in Acts is a character in Luke's mission narrative, whereas Paul, the author of letters that we have, um, is a is a, a an author so we have two different pauls in the new testament actually there are more than that because um we have almost most of the new testament is in dialogue with paul in some way or another so you have people who have obviously read paul and either love him or don't uh, or love his ideas or and don't um uh, making uh cracks that that seem to refer to things that paul said so paul is a major figure in the new testament um um, in, in influence and um, counter-influence. Um, but um, just to, re- to remind us, I thought it would be, Paul doesn't narrate his conversion, whereas Luke does it in Acts in technicolor, living technicolor, three times. Luke loves this story. Luke doesn't usually uh, tell stories three times. Uh, but this one he does, this story from, of Paul's conversion, uh, from Saul to Paul, uh, Luke has uh, describes the story first in Acts 9 and then has Paul tell the story of his conversion in 22 and again in 26 as he's before 
various famous people. He could have just had a line saying, so Paul told the story of his conversion. No, not going to do that. He's going to retell the... Paul is going to retell the story so we hear the story of Paul's conversion three times if we read Acts all the way through. And that's really striking. Um, so you might say that this is the, the most important conversion story in Acts of the Apostles. But before we go to Acts, let's look at what Paul himself says about his conversion, which is not much, so we can do it pretty quickly. Um, first, let's go to Galatians um, 1 and 2. Who's got a page number? Sword drill. Who's the sword drill? Good for you. We may have two different Bibles going here. Okay, 176 and 1. What was your number? Okay, good. All right. Everybody there? All right. Paul says in one chapter 111 of Galatians, I want you to know brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through an apocalypse, is the word in Greek, an apocalypsis, a revelation of Jesus Christ. An apocalypse, as you remember, means a drawing back of the curtain, an unveiling. So it was hidden to Paul at first, and then it was revealed. And then he goes on to explain what he means by received his what he learned about the gospel through an apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism, as opposed to his present life in Judaism. I was violently pursing the church of God and was trying to destroy it. Um, I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born, thank you, Jeremiah, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. This is the first mention of Damascus in in there. So Paul says he returned to Damascus. That may imply that his revelation of Jesus Christ, his apocalypse of, of Jesus Christ, took place in Damascus. Anyway, that's what Luke is going to tell us in Acts. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I didn't see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you, I do, I, before God, I do not lie. Okay, okay, Paul, easy. Um, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said, the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then he goes on to talk about um, the next time he went up to Jerusalem for something, some other purpose. But that's all, that's all we get of, of Paul uh, in Galatia. No account of the encounter with with Jesus Christ at all. The other place to look is Philippians 3. One eighty six. Good. Well spotted. Where Paul is um, in in talking about um, um, people who are boasting about their adherence to the law he says, look, if anybody's boasting, I can boast more than anybody. Uh, it sounds a little bit like Donald. I, sorry. Um, <laughs> even, and, uh, even though I, too, have reason for confidence in the flesh. And then so here's um, verse 4, the second half. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, that is the strictest, the strictest part, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, or the faith in Christ, um, or the faith of Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if perhaps somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I already have, but I press on, um, and you know that passage. So that's that Paul says even less in Philippians 3 than he says in Galatians 1 and 2, but he does mention though that, that, that as a test for zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. So I want to talk a little bit about what Paul means by zeal um, in Philippians 3 and in Galatians 2, uh, I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Um, the the kind of zeal that Paul is talking about probably involves violence. Violence to idolaters, violence to those um, who are not following the will of God. Um, and uh, my reason for saying that is that in the in the encounter of Elijah and the priests at Baal that takes place on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 19, you remember that that famous story uh, where there's a, a, a standoff there on top of the mountain between um, Elijah and the priests of Baal about who can cause fire to come down from heaven. Right after that story, Elijah goes out and slaughters a whole bunch of priests of Baal. Moses in Exodus 32, right after the golden calf incident, um, he comes down the mountain and, and hears uh, uh, what his assistant says sounds like um, battle. And, and, and Moses says, no, it doesn't sound like battle. They go down. It's a big party. They're all dancing around this golden calf. And Moses looks at Aaron and says, well, I, you know, they said they wanted a, a god. So I said, give me your earrings. I put them in the oven and out came this golden calf. So, you know, we thought maybe it was okay to worship it. We didn't, nobody seen you for 40 days and 40 nights. And, you know, and, uh, and, and Moses, Moses was not uh, pleased uh, with that account or with Aaron. Um, and uh, he, he put the, the mix, he ground the, the golden calf up into, into gold dust, put it in water and forced the people to drink it. And then he rounded up a bunch of people and they had a massive slaughter of uh, the Levites. And Moses was carried out some 300 people slaughtered that day. So in both of those stories, the, the Moses, um, Israel's greatest prophet, and Elijah, a new Moses, uh, another a great prophet like Moses, um, violence and loyalty to God um, uh, 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 against idolatry results in violence if necessary. And then there's the story of Phineas in Numbers 25. That's one much well less known. So let's go there for a minute. Phineas is described as being zealous for the Lord. Um, um, he has uh, God's approval in this story. It's a story I wish we're not in our holy scriptures, but every tradition has violent stories in its scriptures, and the trick is not to get rid of them, but to talk about how to deal with them, how to read them, how to interpret them. So here we are at, um, at um, Numbers 25, the worship of Baal of Peor. While Israel was staying at Shittim, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab, the Moabites. They, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked itself to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and impale them in the sun before the Lord, in order that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you shall kill any of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Just then, one of the Israelites came and brought a Midianite woman into his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the Israelites while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he got up and left the congregation, taking a spear in his hand. He went after the Israelite men into the tent and pierced the two of them. They were clearly copulating. And he drives his spear right through the bodies of the two of them, the Israelite and the woman, through the belly. 
So the plague was stopped among the people of Israel. Nonetheless, those that died by the plague were 24,000. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites by manifesting such zeal among them on my behalf that in my jealousy I did not consume the Israelites. Therefore say, I hereby grant him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and for his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. So the word zeal and zealous is linked to Phineas for this act of violence in defense of, of what he perceived to be God's honor. I'm going to say it that way. His intentions were good. Moses had given a command like that. Phineas is just following orders. And um, he's uh, not afraid to use violence in order to get God's will done. I think young Saul read stories like that, read the story about Moses and the, and the golden calf, read the story about Elijah uh, on Mount Carmel, and read the story about Phineas, a hero that, of, of whom in, that, in the way that story is told, God clearly approves of his action and is going to, you know, uh, goodwill towards all his generation um, and said yes. And so people who are not keeping God's law, claiming to be um, Israel, reformed Israel, um, Israel under the conditions of Roman Empire and are not keeping God's law are supposed to die. Um, my students are sometimes shocked when I say that I have no problem thinking about Paul um, flying a plane into the World Trade towers um for the, for the for the sake of god uh for the um for uh for so the, against these uh pagans against these people who are not obeying god's law um it is possible to become so uh enamored of your of your own cause um that any that the means justify the ends uh that the whatever it takes to for god's will to be done um now, if we stop and think about this philosophically for a minute, the problem is not zeal for the Lord, is it? Um, I, I hope we're all zealous for the Lord. The problem is taking into our own hands in a violent way um, uh, the, the punishment that, that is nor, vengeance is mine, says the Lord in a couple of places in Scripture. Uh, so let God do the deciding about who lives and who dies rather than those, those you can care deeply about the ways of God and not pick up a sword. Um, Christians remember uh, how bad we looked as a result of the Crusades. In the, in the name of gentle Virgin Mary, somebody takes a sword and, and drives, it, drives it through the head of an, an, an infidel. You know? and, and as I say, every religious tradition has to struggle with traditions and texts around violence. Um, so um, it isn't and it isn't just monotheism either. So there's a, there's a, a uh, you know, the, the word on the street out there is the pro that the problem is monotheism. So the three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, are the ones that somehow people get, all, uh, get crazy for the Lord and get violent and start killing people. Um, but um, I went to Myanmar um, in January and we saw militant Buddhists. If you go to India, you'll see... Uh, militant Hindus um, so so it's it's every every religious tradition that I know of um, every major religious tradition has to struggle with this this so I just want I want to preface that uh, to these comments I don't want uh, I wouldn't want you to go away thinking that um, first century Judaism was especially violent um, Saul Paul is an exception he's he's zealous he's pig-headed he's single-minded um, focal vision, tunnel vision, um, like Phineas. He's, he's, a, he's, like, he's a character like Phineas and would have presumably stayed that way except God had other ideas. Um, so, yeah, good. Um, Judas was supposedly a zealot and that might fit with kind of feel. But I've also heard that Jesus may have been a zealot. Is there some difference between being a zealot and just... Um, Jesus was crucified between two bandits, uh, zealot, um, as one person's um, freedom fighter is another person's um, um, treason, a, a person who commits treason. Um, and the problem is that they overlap, bandits and, 
and zealots because you couldn't attack, Rome was huge, you couldn't attack Rome directly. So you lived up in the hills and you would swoop down and sort of guerrilla warfare uh, to attack Rome as you could and then go back up in the hills where it was safer. But you needed provisions. So you would also um, liberate things from people who were going near your hill. Um, and so you become a, so you're abandoned in order to make a living uh, so you can be a freedom fighter slash zealot. Um, I, I don't think Jesus was a zealot. Um, um, it, there, you know, there's so many um, biographies of Jesus and so many um, ways of describing Jesus, and you have to sell books. And any, any book with, a, with Jesus in it, especially if it makes a controversial claim, will fly off the shelf. Still, this is good news for us. That means there's mission field out there for us. Um, but it is a, a problem sometimes trying to keep our own story straight. Um, I, so that I don't. I also don't think, though, that you could. It's hard to make a case that Jesus was an absolute pacifist, too. Um, sorry. Well, but yeah, uh, in John's gospel, Jesus made a whip of cords to drive out the, the money changers in the temple. In the other two, he turned over some tables and spilled some coins. I, I don't. I don't know. People. Nobody was killed in that. Um, I think when we're talking about zealots, we're talking about the Sicarii were people who carried daggers. They were assassins. So how you get to Rome, the all power, you, is you, you take out a, a Roman here and there where, where you can with a dagger. Um, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's who Jesus, that's the accounts that we have um, from the Gospels don't really give a lot of credence to that sort of violence. Um, there's, there are just one or two texts. That there's one text in Luke. Um, where um, Jesus says, "Before I told you that don't to have swords, but now I'm telling you that you should you should have a sword." And the, the disciples say, "Lord, here are two swords." And Jesus says, "That's enough. Two swords isn't very many." So this is right before the arrest, and um, and so it's a puzzling text. Nobody knows quite what to make of it. Um, it's only it's the only thing we have like that. Uh, for the rest of the part, for the, the rest of the of the of the gospels insofar as they're biographies of Jesus and they, they're sort of something like that but they're also theological reflection, reflections on Jesus from several years, 30 something years later usually um, the, um, we don't get that picture of Jesus so, um, it's complicated um, so I'm, I'm, um, I, I can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt that he wasn't a zealot um, I don't think anybody could say beyond a shadow of a doubt that he wasn't anything we don't have enough evidence but it doesn't look like it. Is that, does that help? Can okay. I ask why? Yeah. Why did Jesus, he had the, you know, road to Emmaus conversion or whatever on the road. Why did he when go? Saul or? or Saul, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's Damascus. Why, yeah. Damascus, not. okay. Uh, why did he go away for three years before he? Yeah, he's making the point in Galatians that he did not confer with the the um, pillars of the church in Jerusalem, and that's going to be an important part of his argument in Galatians. Somebody seems to have been saying that that Paul learned everything he knew from Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem, but he seems to have forgotten it. Paul saying, "Excuse me, I didn't learn it from Peter, James. I learned it from Jesus Christ." So um, it's that's part of his the that's his narrative there serves a point a part. A point in his argument in Galatians. Um, we don't know a whole lot about uh, what happened to Paul early. He says that he wasn't known to the churches in Judea, that's that whole southern area around Jerusalem, um, that they just heard rumors that he had done a 180 degree about face. So that's all we get. We don't know why he went into, into Arabia. We don't even know what he means by Arabia. Arabia is a big place in the Roman Empire. So we don't, we don't, we wish. We wish we knew more. When we get there, we're going to ask him lots of questions. I have a long list. <laughs> you know, that will be one of them. You know, what? He's yeah. from Tarsus, right? Which right. Is Turkey, right? Yeah, uh, Turkey. yeah um, right. Or northern. Yeah, it's Turkey. That's right. And his uh, father was a Roman citizen, so he was also a Roman citizen. Well, according to Luke, not according to Paul. This is the, this is another one of those things where, um, where in in. That's uh, why he had to go to Rome because he couldn't try, right? Because they couldn't try because he was a citizen. And Paul appeals to the emperor. That's why he goes to Rome. He has the right to appeal to the emperor. Yeah, this is Luke's Paul. But we we do need to make a distinction between the Paul in Acts and the Paul that we know about from Paul's letters because 
Luke is telling a story, and as I keep saying, um, I'm sure you're sick of hearing me say it, um, the history was not done the same way in the first century as it was as the way we do it. History is to tell a moral tale, um, it's partly entertainment. Um, it's, it has, has different functions from what, what we use, the way we understand history today. So um, maybe Paul was a Roman citizen, maybe he wasn't. It is, we just don't know historically. So, um, okay, so let's go to... Paul says he was not a citizen? No, Paul doesn't say anything about it. Okay, so let's go to Acts 9 and hear this story that Luke likes enough to tell three times. <coughs> they're pretty close, the three, the three accounts, um, although there is, uh, in the third account, there's something that isn't in the others that I do want to make sure we mention. All right, so we're, we're in Acts 9. Um, actually, no, let's go back before we, Acts, let's go to Acts 7, where we were um, Last time, I think last time, maybe it was the time before, um, at the end of the story of the stoning of Stephen, uh, so 757, they covered their ears, and with a, after this long sermon that he's just given in most of chapter 7, um, they covered their ears and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. So he would. Um, so... Uh, in fact, that, and then the next line is, that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. So all, all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Um, devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. All right, so this is the before picture of uh, of Saul uh, holding the coats for the for the people who are stoning Stephen, uh, approving of his killing and rounding up men and women as part of a se- severe persecution of the church in Jerusalem. So therefore, in Judea. All right. So uh, chapter nine, the story picks up at that, this point. Um, Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, um, this is um, Luke's particular um, coined word for the way of Jesus Christ, the Christian way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going bound to Jerusalem, that is to the Sanhedrin, the council that would determine whether or not they should live or die. But if they had committed blasphemy or idolatry, both of which would be involved in worshiping Jesus um, from from the point of view of someone who believes that that there's one God, which we all still confess, one God. um, But then what are you doing? Worshiping Jesus. That's got to be unless Jesus is God, which is what Christians were saying, um, the, um, uh, that's blasphemy and idolatry. So the death penalty. So he's not just rounding them up. He's bringing them bound to Jerusalem to deliver them to death. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, noticed no horse, and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? So he he sort of knows and sort of doesn't who it is, right? Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand 
and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Shock. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying. We like to say that we have at least four Judases named in the New Testament, so it's a common name. So there's obviously not that Judas because he's dead already. So um, at this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias by the way, not the same Ananias that we were talking about before. Uh, again, a, a common name. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. By the way, this is the only, only time in the book, whole book of Acts the expression Son of God is used. It's on the lips of the person who had just been persecuting the church. Powerful statement. All who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the guy who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Presumably from proofs in scripture, we would love to have heard those sermons. Um, but we have some idea from some other parts of the New Testament. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. These, when we're talking about the Jews here, we need to be careful. Everybody in the whole thing is Jewish. Um, but these are people who are Jews like Saul. They're like, they're like the people just like him before his conversion. Um, and so naturally, he's going to be targeted, right? Um, he would, they would, this would get this guy. He's, this is apostasy. He's just gone over to the other side. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket so not a particularly dignified way to leave Damascus um, in the night through a basket uh, down down the wall but if it works it works okay um, I think we're probably supposed to think about Rahab and the spies in uh, Joshua 2 in Jericho um, Luke has a way of telling story well he's he's not going to say just like Rahab and the spies at Jericho you're supposed to remember the story and put the pieces together and we do all right um, well, we should keep reading a little bit more, and then we'll go look at the other accounts. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he, had, he tried to join the disciples. <laughs> right! <laughs> and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Um, but Barnabas took him. Remember, we met Barnabas, um, son of encouragement. He's the one who gave away, sold his field, and, and gave the money. Uh, he was in contrast to to Ananias and, and Sapphira. Uh, Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. 
So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem. I think they're probably still careful for a while. Speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were trying to kill him. When the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up, living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. All right, so that's the story of Paul's conversion as we have it in Acts 9. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's take a look at the other two versions of the story. In um, Acts 22, <clears throat> Paul is defending himself. Um, actually, let's go to 21. Paul is explaining to the tribune um, after they, they've uh, beaten Paul. Um, um, the crowd is yelling away with him. And it, I'm, at, I'm at 2137. Just as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he says it in Greek. The tribune replied, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? <laughs> Paul, no. <laughs> no, Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia a citizen of an important city, I beg you, let me speak to the people. So he addresses them in Hebrew, um, and here's his story. Brothers and, and fathers, listen to the defense that I now make to you. When they heard him addressing them in Hebrew, they became even more quiet. He said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, educated strictly according to our ancestral law. Remember, we saw... Um, Gamaliel, last time he was the one that said, don't um, be wise about this. If, it, if, it's not, if this movement is not of God, it will fail. If it is of God, you wouldn't want to be opposing God. So, wise Gamaliel. Educated strictly according to our ancestral law, being zealous for God, is that word again, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way up to the point of death by binding both men and women and putting them in prison as the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. From them I also received letters to the brothers in Damascus, and I went there in order to bind those who were there and to bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. While I was on my way and approaching Damascus around noon, new detail, a great light from heaven suddenly shone about me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? Then he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, um, but, did not, but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. If you remember the story I just read you in Acts 9, there's a little conflict there. Luke isn't worried about it. Um, he's, it's a good story. He, this is the way. You know, oh, Paul may have, may have just been confused something. Don't worry about it. Um, the Lord said, get up and go to Damascus. There you will be told everything that has been assigned to you to do. Since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, um, those who were with me took my hand and led me to Damascus. The emphasis on light is, diff is, is, is more in this uh, story. A certain Ananias, who was a devout man according to the law and well spoken of by all the Jews living there, came to me and standing beside me, he said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. Okay, that's the short version. In that very hour, I regained my sight and saw him. Then he said, um, not in the other story, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear his own voice. For you will be his witness to all the world of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, and have your sins washed away, calling on his name. After I had returned to Jerusalem and while I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And saw Jesus saying to me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And while the blood of your witness Stephen was shed, I myself was standing by approving and keeping the coats of those who killed him. Then he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Acts 22. We have one more version, 
in Acts 26. Paul defends himself again, this time before King Agrippa. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul stretched out his hand, it's the, the, the position of an orator, and began to defend himself uh, with a little flattery first. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. You're especially familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. His wife was Jewish. Therefore, I beg of you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from youth, a life spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that I've belonged to the strictest sect of our religion and lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial on account of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors, a promise that our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. It is for this hope, Your Excellency, that I am accused by the Jews. Why is it thought incredible that by any of you that God raises the dead? Uh, this is this is um, so he's in defense of the resurrection. Um, so here, but here he goes on to tell about his his background. Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is what I did in Jerusalem with authority received from the chief priests. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. By punishing them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities like Damascus. With this in mind, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests when at midday, okay, so noon, same idea, close to the, the second story, Along the road, Your Excellency, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and my companions. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, new detail, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? New word. It hurts you to kick against the goads, against the, against the pricks. Uh, that is, if there are sharp, uh, sharp uh, nails or something coming out of something and you kick against them, you, you're going to hurt yourself. This is a. This is a. This is only in this story. It hurts you to kick against the goads. I asked, "Who are you, Lord?" The Lord answered, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn." from darkness to light, where we got the, the title of the course, um, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among all those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this time the heavenly vision says a whole lot more than it said in, in uh, the last time. We have a whole prediction of what Paul's career is going to be on the lips of the risen Jesus um, on, in, the, in the vision. And Paul famously says, after that King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the countryside of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do deeds consistent with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had help from God, and so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what Moses and the prophets said would take place. Namely, that the Messiah must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Festus says, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you insane. One of my favorite quotations in the Bible. Um, but um, but let's, now, now we're ready to talk about the, the elements in the story. Three different versions, as I say. Luke loves this story of Paul's conversion. Um, we get not not just the the bare bones of it, but um, the story grows and becomes fuller as as uh, Paul tells it. Some of the details are expanded, and when, if we put all three stories together, um, we, we have a pretty amazing narrative here. Um, um, as it, so, and I say Luke isn't worried about the discrepancies. Um, a story is a story, and and you have three versions of a wonderful story. They're all right. Um, it doesn't really matter. Um, that, the, that the details don't don't match, um, but the, as you listen to these stories, um, what 
what sort of response do you have? Do you, do you find, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we have this, what's your initial reaction to Saul become Paul? Do you, do you find your, is this a story that draws you in? I mean, Luke's narrative style draws us in. But is it, do, you, do, you become, do you become interested in this character or, or attracted to him? Or do you, do you think, are you suspicious of such a sudden conversion? How does, it, how does this story play? Galatians. Mm-hmm. So the part where he says that Jesus himself was the one who told him about himself and talked about being kind of envisioned or he was with Jesus learning. I don't know if that's I don't know if it's in this story, but it's in other parts. You've and seen you we've just seen everything there is. You've, you've just heard everything that, that from Luke's version of the story, you saw how little there was in Paul himself. Right. Luke's version of the story, the, the heavenly voice, the voice, the voice of, of Jesus speaking to Saul on the road of Damascus, um, does not impart doctrine okay. that, that I can see. I mean, okay. it's, uh, it's more about what will happen to Paul, more about how God will use him as an evangelist and how he will have to suffer um, because of his witness to Jesus Christ. The, for the first story in Acts 9, we don't even get that. We, get, we just get, um, you know, um, get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. That's all we get. So that's not much. But in the other two versions, that's why I thought it would be interesting to, to see the, all three of them, um, we get the heavenly voices says a little bit more. And by the time we get to 20, Acts 26, the, it lays out a whole plan for, for what, what Paul will do in the future, which is, of course, what he does in Acts. So, so that's, is that supposed to be Jesus telling him what's going to happen to him? That's the way Luke narrates it. Okay. Yeah. So in, in Acts 26, what we just looked at. Okay. That's all, all of that that I read is all, all by the voice of Jesus. In a vision, right? Okay. That's the vision part is, I guess, where Well, I'm Jesus is already dead, remember? Right, right. by this time. Right, right, right. right. He's already been crucified and raised and at the right hand and, and ascended to God. Right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. In answer to your question, this is the most extraordinary of things. I mean, this, this is a man who really is a voice of Christianity. Can everybody hear you? So, yes, speak. Yeah. I, I say this is an extraordinary thing because this is this is the man who really is the voice of Christianity. He brings it to the Gentiles. I mean, most of the things we have in, come out of Paul's mouth in, in, in the New Testament. He's the first, man, the he's first the theologian, here, really. And all of a sudden, like that, he's, he's yeah, a real turnaround. When we were t- the very first day, I was talking about different story, different stories about conversion. Sometimes it's like a, a ship that that can do a 180 degree turn but it does it so slowly that you're not even aware that it's turned around um, this isn't like that <laughs> this is Paul going 150 miles an hour in one direction hitting a brick wall going uh, getting up and going 150 miles an hour in the opposite direction um, I think that's all I think that's all Paul knew how to do he he is uh, he is we can tell from his own letters as, as well as from the account in Acts um, that he didn't sit around twiddling his thumbs. He was a busy man, traveled a lot, uh, planted a whole lot of churches, um, and, and wrote some powerful letters. Is the same uh, phrase where he says, 
said that I've talked to Jesus directly. Is he trying to establish his own authority, uh, you know, separate from what's in Jerusalem? Yes, in Gal- if, we, if this were a course in Galatians, we would be spending lots of time on that. Because Paul, um, Paul talks about Peter, James, and John, describes them as the pillars, says he gave himself and Bar- they gave him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, divided up the mission field so that he would go to the uncircumcised, they would go to the circumcised, so that they would go to, to the Jews and he would go to the Gentiles. And that's going to be a really important part of the argument in Galatians. Um, but in that's, that's, that's uh, so Paul's account of his conversion, um, the most important thing in the story is to say, and by the way, none of that happened anywhere near Jerusalem, and I did not get my marching orders from Peter, from Peter, James, and John. It was much later after that, after I'd been preaching and teaching for a long time, that I finally got to Jerusalem. Um, you know, um, I had, had, had met, uh, I'd met Peter and James for two weeks. That's not long enough to have a catechism course. That's not long enough to have a seminar on how to do mission work among Gentiles. Not happened. Didn't happen. Um, so, so he's somebody must, somewhere must have said, well, everything Paul ever learned he knew from Peter, James, and John. So why is he opposing the church in Jerusalem now? You know, what's wrong with this guy? And he said, excuse me, that's not how it was. But that's that's the point in Galatians. Uh, it's a it's an it's an uh, anti-Jerusalem church bullying statement, not a not a uh, not meant to be um, a yeah, and 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 Acts hasn't even been written yet, so and won't be written for. And I mean, Paul is writing Galatians in the 50s, the early 50s, and um, this is written in 85 or so. So we have a a time dif- a serious time difference, and a serious genre difference. Paul is writing a letter. He's furious at the Galatians for being cowed by people from the Jerusalem church. So he's he's got an axe to grind all the way through Galatians. He says it's a fist on the table, Paul. Um, so he hasn't lost his energy or his con- his sense of conviction or his his willingness to go to great lengths this time to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than kill the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so as I say, he has, his personality hasn't I think changed all that much, but he's no no more violence. Now the now he's trying to win people by words, by speech, by by the powers of persuasion, which is a different kind of of move. And it seems to me that that's as I say, all, all major religions have to deal with texts that seem to incite violence, and in, and choose instead um, a way of of being a way of witnessing, a way of giving glory to God that involves conversation, speech. Powerful speech, rhetorically powerful speech. Um, but the the when Jesus in Revelation is described as having a sword coming out of his mouth, I think that's important. The power, uh, the power to convict, convert, um, is uh, is is a, is a verbal power, not not a real sword. Yeah, and it's an important difference, obviously. But that's uh, so. I think, but I think these stories help help us to get clear about uh, when we when we think about the role that violence plays in religion um, we have to deal with this character in our own past as you say a very important figure in the New Testament and in the beginning of the Christian mission so what else reactions comments thoughts lots to say about this I sometimes I wish I had had a Paul experience where Jesus was that clear. Well, amen. Yes, I think for for many of us, um, the the way we have come to know Jesus is through childhood stories, Bible stories, um, going to church, hearing hearing singing hymns, um, learning about Jesus, and then. Um, then at some point we have we, we learn how to pray um, or as, as children probably the, the now I lay me down to sleep then at some point the Lord's Prayer but um, we're, it's, it's, not, um, it's not unusual for people particularly people who have gone on retreats or, do, or done 
meditation to have encounters with Jesus, but they very few, I don't know anybody who's been blinded by uh, Jesus for three days and three nights to the, the, the kind of shock treatment that Paul had. But of course, most of us don't need it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not, we're not, we don't have that sort of single-minded um, energy that would that that is that a fanatic has. A fanatic really is the right word here. Zealot may not be strong enough. We're really talking about fanatic, somebody who's a, a, a and I would say terrorist, a religious terrorist. Um, so. Um, so how does a how does somebody like that get stopped in their tracks and turned around? It may take an intervention like that. Um, we have in the Bible both kinds of stories. Just when we're, when we're coming up to Pentecost, we have the dramatic um, account of the Holy Spirit coming down on the on the uh, disciples in Acts two, the Pentecost story. But we also in John twenty have a very gentle. Uh, account of Jesus with his disciples where he breathes on them and says receive the Holy Spirit those whose sins you forgive are forgiven those whose sins you retain are retained um, it's, uh, it couldn't be more low key and quiet and, and gentle than in, Acts, than in John 20 as opposed to the account of the coming down of the spirit with flames of fire in, in, in Acts 2 um, and I, I guess we just have to say uh, um, there are people who have dramatic experiences of of God, and others that's it's more just more low key and and gentle. Um, I've had some of both, so um, I don't think I'm quite as pig-headed as Paul is, but I have my moments. <laughs> so, um, other thoughts, comments. That's true. It's true. Um, And we still have a very close relationship to Judaism, a very special relationship to Judaism, um, as you know, and as you have enacted, and as people are in Jerusalem right now with the the, uh, synagogue. Um, They are still there, right? Oh, they're back? Okay, sorry. They're back from Jerusalem. Um, So uh, full of of stories. Um, The... um, yeah, no, Paul is, um, he's the church's first theologian and still one of the church's best theologians. Um, he just had an uncanny ability to, to, um, to, to preach and write letters in a way that, that makes the gospel come alive. He also had a, had a willingness to stand firm and, um, and resist being pressured into saying something that was not the gospel, which is, which is the point of Galatians. So um, he still had that that toughness, but he can also be, um, and we see it in his letters. We don't see the gentleness side of Paul much in Acts. We just hear him turning around 180 degrees and going the opposite direction, proclaiming Jesus Christ until he's sent off to Rome, so um, where he will die under Nero. Um, but um, in the letters, there's some real there's some real tenderness, softness, and love love language in Paul. It's not what he's famous for, but it's there. Yeah. So it's interesting that his character didn't change, like you said. It just turned I guess after he got his orders from Jesus what he was supposed to do, he just flipped over and did things that he would have not done, you know, like following the dietary um, restrictions and all the I think he's still doing those himself, but I but he's not requiring Gentiles to come who come in to do that. Um, but but that's a disputed question. Not everybody would say it. Not everybody would say it that see it that way. So I'm I'm weighing in. Um, but um, um, yes, but it but the violence seems to have ended. So that's I, the, the reason I'm stressing that is because that's not often talked about. Um, and 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 the the whether religious zeal implies violence of killing people with whom I disagree, um, that seems to have changed in Paul. He's not he's not calling for people to be killed. You don't find that in his letters. 
and there's still plenty of room for disagreement. He's not, he's not enforcing. I mean, he, said, he sent people to death um, before, before and testified, as you, as you know, those, um, and he seemed to have stopped that. So that part of his personality does seem to have changed. And um, maybe when, you've, when you sort of look at horror at what you've caused, you're a little slower to do it again on the other side. Maybe that's what happened to Paul. But it's stronger than yeah. that. After all, Jesus has come to him. He now is a whole new person because he's embodied with Jesus. And Jesus was not a violent person. Jesus had tremendous power with, with gentleness. And that's now the, the Right. Law. Well, this is what we're talking about. We, we don't, we're, we're, um, we're trying to figure out how to, how to place Jesus in the context of the, of the Jewish war that happened right, right after his death. Uh, I'm sorry, it didn't happen right after his death. What am I thinking? He died in 30, 30 years after his death. But there, but there are, um, it's all around. And, and particularly Galileans were famous for being hotheads against the Roman Empire. So there are, there are, there are questions about what, the, what that means. We, have, however, have to defer those questions because we're out of time. This always <laughs> happens to us. Um, so we have one, one more week. We're um, week five. If you want to do homework, um, read Acts 10 to 15. Um, and this is a, the, the conversion uh, from fear of Gentiles to welcoming Gentiles. So we'll hear more about Paul and Barnabas and more about Peter, how Peter changed his mind about that. Um, so that's what we'll be doing next week. Um, and I look forward to seeing you then.